Our family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why, and what we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hi, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vandershaft, and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to our podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In our second season, we'll talk about the mythology of sports and whether sports matter, about Broadway shows, the search for truth and reliable information, and uncovering not only my grandfather's FBI file, but the story of how he met my grandmother. And we'll have some special guests. Well, good morning, Dad. How you doing? Good morning, Sarah. I'm up and at them. Uh, I just, you guys have to keep me honest in terms of my volume because I got a text from my 15 year old telling me that she was on an important call. So um, I have to watch my volume. Uh, and uh, it's been a busy morning because I've already fixed the printer and conjugated French verbs with my 11 year old. So Which, I'm to- <laughs> do you know how to do that? I have to use every brain cell and I actually have my college textbook uh-huh. from French and I have been turning to it. Um, I got it out of the garage. I don't know why I saved it, but um, <laughs> it's been useful. <laughs> <laughs> well, today uh, is April 8th and in a typical year, we would be in baseball season, wouldn't we? Yeah, about a week into it, I would already have drafted my rotisserie baseball fantasy team and be reading the box scores every morning to see how my players uh, were doing. My teams were named Moman's Ombres because Moman was Roberto Clemente's first nickname. And also the other team is just called Viva Clemente's. So mm-hmm. I tend to draft a lot of Latino players. <laughs> you had a team uh, before this, didn't you, that had a different name? Oh, I've had many names over the years. Um, my friends and I from the Washington Post started perhaps the second or third rotisserie team in the country back in, ni- in the early 1980s, right after the whole concept had been invented. And before it became a billion-dollar sport uh not sport, but gambling enterprise with especially uh, fantasy football. Um, so, yeah, my first team were called the Silver Spring Chickens. Because <laughs> we lived in Silver Spring, we Maryland. Lived in Silver at Spring, the time. right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the one I remember. And uh, the draft days were, were big business. People would, would they fly in? Um, am I remembering that right? Oh, absolutely. You know, we lived in Austin for eight years during that period. And I would fly in um, from Austin for the draft and people would come down from New York City. And yeah, it was, and my brother and dad were actually in the first couple of years and they would come in from Massachusetts and Wisconsin for it. Yeah. So baseball has been um, a big part of our family's life. Um, And today we're going to talk about the biography you wrote of Roberto Clemente, um, the great outfielder uh, for Pittsburgh and Latino player. And uh, this book, it's interesting, Dad, I picked it up to revisit for our conversation today. And I was trying to remember um, why... As much as I am familiar with it, 
um, I had to revisit things in a, in a more detailed uh-huh. way than even the Lombardi book, although that, I think I read that obviously years before. And then I looked at the publication date and it says 2006. And I realized why, <laughs> because uh, Heidi, my first child, was born in 2005. So I think it's fair to say that when I read this book, I was on mommy brain and <laughs> not getting as much sleep, um, even though Heidi was my better sleeper of the two kids. Um, so this takes us back to 2006. And what's also fun is um, when you were writing it and researching it, I remember um, uh, in the earlier days that Heidi had just been born. And I remember when mom went to Pittsburgh to research with you, she put pictures of Heidi on her hotel bedroom because she missed Heidi so much. And she didn't want to be in Pittsburgh. <laughs> she wanted to be with her grandchild. Yeah, well, I was writing the book uh, when we lived in Princeton in the uh, fall of 2005 when I was teaching there. I was yeah. still writing the book then. That's right. Um, So this book, when I opened the first page to look at that publication date, the copyright, I also see the dedication and in memory of Elliot Marinus, my wonderful dad, the sweet swinging left-hander from Abraham Lincoln High. Uh, I thought that was a great um, way to start our conversation today because I think your dad is the one who introduced you to the love of baseball. Uh, so can you talk a bit about that and Grandpa's uh, experience with baseball and how he introduced <laughs> you to it? No, he sure did love baseball. Um, you know, I can remember as a as a kid when we lived in Madison that my dad and I would sit on the side porch. He was often in his, uh, his uh, briefs uh, <laughs> late at night, his T-shirt and, and – uh, shorts and uh, we'd listen to the Milwaukee Braves on the radio uh, with their announcers Earl Gillespie and Blaine Walsh and it was just one of the wonderful things about uh, my childhood remembering those memories of listening to baseball on the radio. Um, We could also pick up Chicago and listen to the Chicago Cubs um, with Jack Quinlan um, and Lou Boudreaux um, and my dad did play baseball in high school at Abraham Lincoln High in Coney Island. Um, he thought he might play at the University of Michigan when he got there, but he wasn't that good. Um, but, you know, we uh, he also was the manager of a softball team, uh, the Capital Times softball team, uh, the newspaper where he worked in Madison. And um, for the years that I was between uh, – from – about my sophomore year in high school until Linda and I left Madison um, for good in 1974, I, I was the shortstop on that team. And Elliot, my dad, was the manager. Um, so in every possible way, uh, he infused baseball into me. And then um, when Andrew, our, you know, your brother was born, uh, not, you know, about when he was about four, Elliot sent him his first uh, whole box of baseball cards mm-hmm. and, inculcated him in becoming a Milwaukee Brewers fan. Um, My father also taught me never to root for the Boston Red Sox because they were the last team to integrate. Um, And race race was a very important part of my dad's life. Um, He, he loved the, he grew up loving the Brooklyn Dodgers when they were the bums, the Brooklyn bums, um, but never forgave them for leaving Brooklyn and moving to Los Angeles. He also hated the New York Yankees, obviously growing up in Brooklyn. 
Um, and he, he would root for any team in the Midwest, basically. So he loved the Milwaukee Braves, the Detroit Tigers. Um, you know, we lived in Detroit when I was a little kid, and my mother would say that she could tell when Elliot had slipped off to a baseball game because he'd come home with mustard on his shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, What's interesting, Dad, because uh, I'd say my memory uh, of baseball is being in the car and hearing the games on the radio, uh, you listening to games. Oh, yes. And I think even now um, in a typical season, Again, I think of you as perhaps lying in the sunroom or on the couch and having the radio on. I almost do you prefer to listen to games rather than watch. Baseball is a radio game. Um, it's much better on the radio than on television for reasons that I can't completely explain, except that it's it's a, a game where it requires the imagination. It, it doesn't have action every second. Um, the, the byplay of the announcers is, is an important part of it. Um, and it, it, you know, it's a game that started before television and it's always just sort of been that. I think that, you know, the modern culture is so fast paced and, um, you know, what's next type of thing that baseball sort of runs counter to that. But so does radio in a sense. And I love radio and I love baseball and I think they were made for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you were growing up uh, and you were born in 1949, to put this in context, uh, who were the baseball players that you really liked to uh, hear about or watch or whose cards did you want to have? Well, let's start about 1957 when we moved to Madison, Wisconsin. It was the summer of 1957, and luckily, um, my new team, the Milwaukee Braves, were on their way to winning the World Series that very summer. Hmm. So I remember I had collected cards before that as a little kid, and I, I vividly remember actually once being in Ann Arbor. I was probably five years old, six years old, and we walked from my grandparents' house to the Kroger's food store, which was perhaps two blocks away. And I bought a pack of baseball cards, and one of the cards was Jackie Robinson. Hmm. And I remember exactly what that card looked like and how thrilling it was for me to get that card. Uh, but if you flash forward to 1957, um, you know, I started to make friends in Madison that summer and the next summer. And collecting cards, you would always want to get the Milwaukee Braves. They had a green background. I remember that vividly. And the old Braves uh, Indian chief symbol in a little circle on the bottom left corner of the card. Um, so, you know, if you got one of the great Braves, whether it was Henry Aaron or Eddie Matthews or Warren Spahn or Billy Bruton or Wes Covington, uh, it made your day. But if you got two copies of the third string catcher, Del Rice, you'd be kind of depressed. <laughs> um, so that was my first team. And um, to get to the subject of our uh, conversation today, even though I love the Milwaukee Braves, probably from about age 11 on, 1960, when the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series and upset the big, bad Yankees. Hmm. From then on, my favorite player was not a Brave, but a player for a team that I didn't even really care that much about, 
Roberto Clemente of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, and I'm looking at your book right now, and in the back it says the lifetime record of Roberto Clemente. So I can see that he started in 1954 at Montreal, but by 1955 he was with Pittsburgh, and he did his whole career there until 1972. So that spans a lot of years and a lot of your life uh, in terms oh, yeah. of someone to watch uh, his career. You grew up uh, quite literally watching him play. What um, what was it about him? It was uh, so many things. Part of it was you couldn't take your eyes off him um, when I started watching on television. The way he uh, he looked so cool in his cut-off pirate uniform, um, the way he threw the ball, both um, when he was relaxed and, and caught a ball and threw it underhand back into the infield just so nonchalantly, um, the beauty of his right arm from deep right field uh, to third base or, or home plate, probably the most thrilling uh, plays in baseball, in my opinion, much more exciting than a home run is to watch a great throw from right field. Um, the the way, the, sort of his idiosyncrasies, the way he would walk to the plate, ro rolling his neck around and around to get on all the kinks. Um, the fact that I read fairly early on that he was a hypochondriac or called mm -hmm. one, and I'm one too, so I identified with him in that sense. Um, and, you know, I think that all of us, you know, have someone in our childhood that we just find a soulful connection to. It can be a singer, uh, an actor, a writer, an athlete, and it, it transcends sort of their statistics or or even the quality of their work, but it has something to do with just uh, ability to identify with them. And here I was, this young white kid in Madison, Wisconsin, and the player identified with most closely was a, a black Puerto Rican uh, for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Clemente. Could we look at your book on page two? Um, and I'm wondering, um, just to set up the next part of our conversation, if you'd be it's kind of a long passage, but I think it, it lays the groundwork for everything, uh, where it starts with memory and myth are entwined in the <clears throat> Sure, yes. This is from the uh, prologue. Memory and myth are entwined in the Clementi story. He's been dead for more than three decades, yet he remains vivid in the sporting consciousness while other athletes come and go. And this despite the fact that he played his entire career in relative obscurity, away from the mythmakers of New York and Los Angeles. Forty public schools, two hospitals, and more than 200 parks and ball fields bear his name, from Carolina, Puerto Rico, where he was born, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he played, to far-off Mannheim, Germany. In the world of memorabilia, the demand for anything Clemente second only to Mickey Mantle and far greater than Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Juan Marichal, or any other black or Latin player. Extraordinary as he was, Clemente was not the greatest who ever played the game, yet there was something about him that elevated him into his own realm. Much of it had to do with the way he died. He was young. He went down in a plane crash. His body was lost to the sea, never found. He was on a mission of mercy, 
leaving his family on New Year's Eve to come to the aid of strangers. In Spanish, Clemente means merciful. Some of it had to do with the way he looked and played on the ball field. Number 21, perfectly cut in his pirate's uniform, a portrait of solemn beauty with his defiant jaw and soulful eyes. And much of it had to do with the way he lived. In sainthood, his people put a lamb in his arms, but he was no saint and certainly not docile. He was agitated, beautiful, sentimental, unsettled, sweet, serious, selfless, haunted, sensitive, contradictory, and intensely proud of everything about his native land, including himself. To borrow the words of the Puerto Rican poet Enrique Zoria, what burned in the cheeks of Roberto Clemente was the fire of dignity. Wow, I think that um, is a, a beautiful um, uh, setup for this book, uh, which you then start in Nicaragua, um, which is haunting because we're going to end there as well. Um, but um, one of the things that struck me as I revisited this, Dad, is that as you wrote about Clemente, you've always talked about how you use sports um, as a way to look at culture and history. Um, and so this is a biography, um, but as we come to understand Roberto Clemente, we come to understand him as a human and as an athlete, but also the world that he uh, was born into and what he was up against. And in some ways, the, the ground he paved yes. for a sport that now, um, you know, to talk about the Latino players, um, uh, it's a very different conversation. So what was going through your um, mind then as you, you know, you look at Clemente um, from the eyes of a child at first, but then as a, a distinguished biographer, what were you, um, what, when did you decide and how did you come to the decision that, that this was going to be your, your next project? The truth is that when I, um, after my uh, book on uh, Vince Lombardi, um, I had more sort of leeway with the Simon & Schuster, my publisher, because that book did so well. And so I signed a two-book contract. And the first book was going to be They Marched Into Sunlight, my book about Vietnam in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And the second would be Clemente. Um, and I had, um, you know, he wasn't the most well-known figure among the new in the New York publishing industry, to say <laughs> the least. Um, but they trusted me that I could pull off this book. The reason I undertook it, you know, you know it's important for me to say that I have uh, athletes um, that I love that I would never write a book about um, because they don't fulfill everything that I'm looking for in a book, which is especially a sports book, which is to use that life and the, those times to illuminate something much larger about the human condition and about history and sociology of that moment. So um, there were, you know, I was never going to write a, for instance, a biography of Brett Favre, or the Packer quarterback, or even Aaron Rodgers, the one now who I deeply love. But Clemente offered me such a, uh, a wider canvas um, to write about um, the 
role of Latinos in American life, um, to look at baseball through the sociology of race and place, um, and to look at an athlete, the rare athlete, who was growing as a human being, even as his talents were somewhat diminishing, although they never did much with Clemente. With most, most athletes, um, you see that, that their performance on the field is everything. And that's enough, really, for most people. But for a book, you want more than that. And that's so that what I found in Clemente was this incredible love of his place, Puerto Rico, his pride in uh, the Latino culture, um, the striving of what I would call a migrant worker coming from the islands to the mainland to ply his trade every uh, spring and summer and fall. Um, and this um, desire to become something beyond a baseball player and to um, add more to the, the human experience than that, um, which Clemente certainly did, and both in his life and in his death. You have in the beginning of the book a quote from Cervantes, uh, good actions ennoble us. We are the sons of our own deeds. Well, that was Clemente. Uh, you know, he, he, um, his, his final deed of, which we'll talk about later of, he had a saying that, um, if you have to, a chance to help others and fail to do so, you're wasting your time on this earth. And so his life was, um, sort of a measure of growth into that, um, concept of doing good deeds. One of the things, Dad, that struck me as I looked through this book um, was that some of the figures you write about, if they're politicians, um, well, there could be a presidential library and their documents. Um, and even in um, uh, the book on Vietnam, there's a, um, you know, there's a record of the battles. There might be letters. But someone, an athlete, especially a baseball player, may not be keeping um, or there may not be the same type of documents. And so... Um, kind of broadly speaking, uh, how did you, uh, we can talk about where you went, you know, we can go to the go there part and the time yeah. where we go, but how did you begin to assemble uh, a sense of who he was in terms of the written record? The written record was perhaps the most difficult of what I call my four legs of the table to, to undertake with Clemente. Um, one essential part of the written record in this case was um, the documentation of his career through um, newspaper stories, um, of which there were thousands. Um, and I actually undertook this book just before the wonderful um, Internet uh, sources like newspapers.com digitized all newspapers. So I spent a lot of time at public libraries, um, in especially the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where I, I live, luckily, um, has every newspaper in the country and in the nation, including the Puerto Rican newspapers, um, 
uh, the New York Times, the Pittsburgh Press Gazette, the Pittsburgh Post, um, all of the papers in the National League cities where Clemente played. So I spent literally weeks and weeks poring over old newspapers, looking not so much for game stories, um, because, you know, I think in a book like this, the least interesting part of it um, is the day-to-day um, chronicle of games. So you pick out maybe five or six games out of a career and focus on those in great detail. But just stories about how Clemente got along with the press, how the press treated him, um, which was shameful in many ways, um, even though he was no bargain for the reporters either, um, with his pride and and uh, uh, what they would call his arrogance, which it wasn't really. Uh, it was a, it was, I shouldn't say it was no bargain. It was a difficult relationship often until the very end of his career when the press started to understand and was changing itself and not so stuck in its old racist ways. Um, so newspapers were a central part of the documentation. Um, I also was able to accumulate uh, records from collectors. Um, Clemente had, was so popular among collectors that they kept many uh, documents related to him, whether they were contracts for his, uh, per, you know, with the pirates every year. Um, some letters I was able to find, not too many in this case. Um, and, of course, the key documents in this book, uh, which we can talk about in detail later, were those related to the plane crash. Yes. Uh, Dad, when you would get to view documents from collectors, how, how did you sort of set that query? And how did, I, I mean, they didn't give them to you. They probably just let you borrow them. But how did you, how did that um, come to be that you could um, get access? Well, there was a great collector in Pittsburgh who actually set up a Clemente museum. Um, And I spent a lot of time with him um, in an old fire station in Pittsburgh. Um, There were some other collectors that I found through him um, and would just contact them. And they, for the most part, knew of me because of my Lombardi book and trusted me and wanted the story to be told. So, you know, it's just part of the reporting process. One person leads to another. Mm-hmm. Um, one old article you read leads to another possible source. And so that's the way I developed those. Uh, I want to get to going to Puerto Rico. But before we do, um, were you able to speak with some of the former teammates? Um, and can you talk a bit about the interviews you did with those players or... Um... Yes. Um, you know, Clemente uh, was born in 1934. Um, I started reporting this book in 2004, I believe, um, or full time. Um, so most of the ball players who played during Clemente's era were still alive. Not all, but most. And so, you know, some of my books... You know, when I talk about the four legs of the table, interviews are an essential part. For the book I'm writing now on Jim Thorpe, there's nobody alive except for great-grandchildren of his um, or of people involved with him. But with Clemente, I still had many, many people who were directly related to him or played with him 
that I could interview. So I did um, scores of interviews with former players um, who were scattered all over the country. Um, some of them, like uh, Steve Blass, who was a pitcher and very close to Clemente, was um, the Pirates' um, color announcer in Pittsburgh. Um, and he had sort of um, a wonderful um, the type of person that you could interview for hours because he had so much to say. Um, Manny Sanguian, who was the catcher of Panamanian, was also in Pittsburgh then. Um, so I pro- And many of the sports writers were still alive, even though I remember interviewing one who lived up on the top of the funicular on Mount Washington in Pittsburgh. Um, and I went up to see him, and he was in his 90s, but a great interview. Um, uh, Al Oliver, uh, a pirate, um, Don Clendenin. Um, I probably interviewed 70% of the pirates who played with Clemente during that period. And, uh, I, you know, I wanted to go back to something you alluded to with the sports writers, which is interesting, too, because when you talk about him being perhaps um, not the easiest subject to write about as a sports writer, there was, the, of course, the racism among some of the writers. But also in the very first chapter, you talk about his antagonism with the um, local sports writer in Nicaragua. Um, oh, yes. You know, it's like he, he can't write anything correct. And then they get into this little battle, it sounds like, in terms of um, the, the articles and so forth. So, um at the heart of it, what was going on when... Um... At the heart of it was Clemente's um, deep need to be recognized for the great one that he was and his constant struggle to get that recognition. Um, you know, in terms of Nicaragua, it just reflected more his deep pride, um, which sometimes... Um, bubbled over uh, a little bit too much. But, you know, I think it was this writer um, just sort of innocently compared a, a young uh, player's arm to Clemente's. Well, nobody had the arm of Clemente, so he got upset about that. Um, but in Pittsburgh, his, his interactions with the reporters, with the sports writers, uh, the scribblers of that era, was um, at a deeper sociological uh, tint to it, and that had to do with uh, sort of their stereotyping of Latinos, uh, especially in that era when there weren't that many in Major League Baseball, um, as being sort of lackadaisical showboats, um, and they would quote them in broken English, even though the sports writers knew no Spanish, and Clemente knew more English than they knew Spanish, but he considered that insulting. And so for all of those reasons, plus his sort of desire to be recognized for what he was, um, led to tensions with the sports writers. Mm-hmm. And is it, am I remembering correctly, too, that they would call him Robbie sometimes instead of... Um... Bobby. 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 Yes. Uh, or Bob Clemente. Um, <laughs> he really only tolerated that from one person, which was... Um, Prince, the uh, radio announcer, who he really liked and who treated him with respect and sometimes would lovingly call him Bobby. But when anybody else did it, he bristled. Um, He wanted to be known as Roberto. In some of his early baseball cards, 
they listed him as Bob Clemente, and that uh, threw him into uh, uh, fits. Uh, he, he demanded that they call him Roberto. Well, let's go now to Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, how did this, um, can you talk to us? We've talked about when you went to Green Bay and set up shop there. Um, can you talk about uh, moving <laughs> temporarily to Puerto Rico? Yeah, well, um, Linda and I went to Puerto Rico three times. And uh, before the first visit, um, I was looking for an, uh, an interpreter. Um, I, I can hack around in Spanish, but I'm not fluent in it. And I knew that there would be a lot of people there and a lot of documents that I'd need to look at that were in Spanish. So um, Linda had worked in, in the environmental field with um, a friend of hers, uh, Javier Velez Orocho, um, who worked with her on ocean cleanups. And he was from Puerto Rico. And we had um, a dinner with him and we're asking him if he knew anyone in San Juan who might help us. And he sort of uh, shyly said, well, I know someone, Pami Rojas. Hmm. Turns out that Pami was his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we arranged for our first trip to Puerto Rico. And Pami was turned out to be fantastic. And I had already set up, with her help, interviews with several key um, Puerto Rican ballplayers uh, Victor Peo, known in the United States as Vic Power, who was a great first baseman for the Cleveland Indians and a close, close friend of Clemente's. Juan Pizarro, the great left-handed pitcher uh, for the Braves and the White Sox, um, and so many others, including um, sports writers there. Um, and one of the first uh, Puerto Rican ball players in the major leagues, Luis Olmo, who was an old man. I remember visiting him in Santurce and spending a day with him. Um, so Pami helped helped me set up all of those interviews, and we would visit um, Roberto Clemente Stadium, um, the cenotaph uh, that's set up for Clemente in his hometown of Carolina. Um, there was a uh, art exhibit at the San Juan uh, Art Museum, um, which was stunning. And it was put together by two uh, men who really didn't care about baseball, but they were interested in mythology and art. And they decided to hold an exhibit where they would um, sort of solicit pieces, uh, homemade pieces of art that somehow had to do with Clemente. And they got thousands of them from, from the just regular people of Puerto Rico and put together this art exhibit for it. And that helped me understand the mythology. Um, visited the, uh, the beach where Clemente's, near where Clemente's plane went down. Spent a lot of time uh, in uh, Carolina, his hometown. Interviewed one of his brothers who was still alive. And, of course, spent time with Vera Clemente, his widow, who still lived in the house um, where they lived when Clemente was still alive. So uh, my visits to Puerto Rico were essential in the sense that I really wanted this book to come from there. You know, we 
in in the, the mainland, baseball people and others know Clemente and identify him with Pittsburgh. Um, but in reality, you have to understand him through Puerto Rico. And that's why I thought it was so essential to spend time there. And let's let's talk about that then. So um, how did Puerto Rico shape him as a young uh, as a young man and as an athlete? He grew up in uh, San Antonio, a, a, a little um, barrio in uh, Carolina outside of San Juan. Um, from the earliest ages, he just loved to throw things. Uh, he would throw, he would wrap yarn in a sock and throw it against the wall. Um, he um, would take the bus from Carolina down to San Juan to watch um, the Winter League baseball teams, um, which in that era, uh, Puerto Rican winter baseball actually was integrated at a time um, when uh, baseball was just starting barely to integrate and even before it had integrated with Jackie Robinson in 1947. Clemente, as a young man, would go down there and his favorite ball player was a African-American named Monty Irvin, who played in the Negro Leagues and then was called up to the New York Giants. Um, so actually Clemente is a very young man. I uh, got to meet Monty Irvin and that sort of helped shape him. Uh, then he started playing softball and then hardball. And it was clear from the earliest of his playing days that he was something special. Um, bef- he, uh, and he started getting into um, the uh, winter leagues, even as a young man in the Puerto Rican leagues. Um, so uh, he he was already incredibly skilled before he got signed um, first by the Brooklyn Dodgers, um, which is quite a story, and then stolen by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Hmm. And what when he came to the um you know, the farm uh, teams and started training in the the mainland, how um, this is in the uh, 50s, um, you describe, uh, especially when I think they were in Florida for part of the training and the the housing situation. Can you talk about? Yeah. So starting in 1955, when he was a rookie on the Pirates, uh, the Pirates first uh, trained in Fort Myers, Florida. And Clemente had grown up in a society where there definitely was racism, but not Jim Crow segregation. So it was a far different and subtler form of racial distinction in Puerto Rico between light-skinned Puerto Ricans and dark-skinned Puerto Ricans. Clemente was dark-skinned, but he never felt... Uh, the sting of out-and-out Jim Crow segregation, which he did uh, starting um, when he came to the Pirate Spring Training, where he and the two other um, black or dark-skinned players on that team um, could not live with the rest of the the team at the the hotel, but were sort of farmed out to African-American families on the other side of the tracks in Fort Myers. Um, When there was a um, 
banquet at the country club honoring the 1955 pirates-to-be, he wasn't invited because he was dark-skinned. When the team from that year on um, through the early 1960s um, would travel from town to town in spring training in Florida uh, to play other um, major league teams, um, they couldn't stop at the restaurants with the rest of the team. Um, and uh, because they were black. Um, and Clemente, who had grown up in a different culture and society, just bristled at this. Um, there's one, as did many of the black players of that era, including Hank Aaron and Billy Bruton of the Milwaukee Braves, um, and others who sort of were in the vanguard of the integration of baseball after Jackie Robinson. Um, but Clemente demanded at one point that the team allow the black players to drive separately in their own station wagon um, so they wouldn't be uh, humiliated by having to stay in the back of the bus while the rest of the team went in to get lunch at some stop at restaurant. Um, he was pushing for integration along with uh, some uh, sports writers for African-American newspapers like the Chicago American, um, Wendell Smith there, who was uh, writing stories about uh, the, the uh, travesty of the segregation of baseball in the South and uh, pushing the major league teams to change that system um, since the game itself had been well integrated by then. Wow. Um, you talk about um, this combination of uh, traits in him. And one of the things that struck me um, again was the sense that he was, um, he seemed well, the idea that he couldn't sleep and that he was agitated and that there was always something um sort of driving him beyond just what was in front of him at that time. Um, how did you uncover that part of his personality? That kind of, um, it seems like it's a, it's like the, the, the motor that was driving him, but that uh, after his death would be hard to piece together again and replicate or to understand. So where did those, how did you get a sense of that part of his well, personality? Yeah, with every uh, biography, um, there are two missions. And one is to tell the story and get it right. And the other deeper mission is to understand what drove the person that you're writing about. So when I undertake a biography, that's really um, tops in my mind is to try to figure this person out. What drove them? And so it was through all of the interviews where I would ask questions about that, um, ranging from fellow ball players to uh, friends in Puerto Rico and Pittsburgh and and his family, of course. Um, you know, it's it's through deep reporting and interviewing, with that question foremost in my mind, that I was able to come to that understanding of him, because in a sense. It drove him through his life, and, and it drove him to his death. And so that that agitation 
um, that beautiful agitation, as I would call it, um, was the key to understanding Clemente. And I had to get to that before I could really uh, have the energy for the book. Um, so it was through that reporting that, that I got it. One of the ways that this also comes through is in his superstitions. Um, <laughs> that's, they're sort of haunting because some of them are simple, and um, but some of them are, are almost prophetic. Um, so can you talk about, I mean, I, there are two things here. Yeah. Uh, athletes can be superstitious. Do you think baseball players are among the most? Um, absolutely. <laughs> Um, you know, it, yes, uh, athletes, you know, baseball players, you know, if they get, if they get, uh, borrow somebody else's bat and get four hits, they want, they'll steal that player's bat. You know, if, if they're in a slump, uh, they'll change their clothes. If they're hitting, they'll keep the, wear the same socks for a month. Um, you know, it's both a stereotype and it's absolutely true with baseball players. Um, because there's such a rhythm and rote to what they do, um, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's because baseball players have a different personality. I think it's just the culture of that game that leads them to these various superstitions. Um, some of Clementi's were like that, and some of them, as you uh, intimated, were uh, more haunting. Um, so. And so can you talk us through some, I mean, I have a, uh, in the book, I see that he's got uh, almost um, uh, the things like don't drink water until two hours after you eat rice. So the food <laughs> won't expand your stomach. I mean, that's not a superstition, but more like a maxim or sort of like yes. a, a way to live. Um, uh, but some of the other ones um, yeah, about with a total, um, you know, like at bats and what to do then and, and things like that. Do you, can you recall some of the, the ones? Yeah, well, um, the thing about at bats, I don't know if that was a superstition. It was just Clemente, which was um, swing at the ball. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he, he was the most notorious free swinger of his era. Um, the more times you swing, the more chances you have of actually hitting it was sort of his uh, motto. And so uh, he he would, you know, it didn't have to be a strike. It had to be something that he saw he could get his bat on the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually drove pitchers crazy. I remember interviewing Ferguson Jenkins, the great right-handed pitcher for the uh, Chicago Cubs. And Fergie said, you know, there were two left-handed hitters who scared the heck out of me whenever I pitched. And one was Willie McCovey of the New York Giants. And the other was Roberto Clemente. And he laughed and we both laughed because of course Clemente was a right-handed hitter, but he would swing at these outside pitches and and cream them down the right field line uh, like he was a lefty. Uh, So, uh, you know, you could never tell that you had a good pitch on Clemente. Uh, He would also often um, set up a, pitcher for later in the game. He would look terrible on a certain pitch in the first or second innings. And the pitcher would then go back to that in a crucial situation. And it turned out that Clemente was waiting for that because he knew he'd already set up the pitcher um, to try to come back to that pitch. And that was the end of that. Um, So it was, you know, those aren't superstitions. Those are strategies, um, sort of intuitions that great hitters have. 
Um, and Clementi was definitely that. Wow. That's, that's quite sophisticated too, then to know to psych the pitcher out on that, on that type of pitch. That's really interesting. Um, you talk about uh, that he would sometimes, um, well, two things, two things that stood yeah. out. The idea that when he would travel to different cities that he would plan to visit um, the children's hospitals or um, children who were sick. Um, and he did that without a lot of fanfare. And the other um, sort of gesture that speaks volumes is that he would cash out uh, like a 20 at a hotel and then hand out coins to people uh, on the street. Clementi was um, the quintessential people's player. I can't tell you, you know, after I wrote the book, I would get um, letters and emails from people who said that they were uh, vendors in the stadium at, at, at uh, Forbes Field in Three Rivers in Pittsburgh. And um, they all knew Clemente. Uh, he <laughs> loved them. Um, and just regular people would call me and say they remember having uh, interactions with Clemente. He wasn't much with uh, sports writers. He wasn't much with uh, famous people, with a few exceptions. But he loved the people. And so that you know that description of him cashing bills and going out with coins that actually was something he did in Nicaragua after he went there with the Puerto Rican team to coach them in the Caribbean World Series in 1972 a few months before he died that's what drew him to Nicaragua and he he would um, go down to the front desk and get exchange everything for coins and then walk around through the uh, the poor parts of of of, of uh, Managua and hand out money to people um, in Puerto Rico. He loved nothing more than driving into the hill country outside of San Juan and talking to the Hiberos, the country people up there. Um, and he did the same thing in in uh, almost every stop on the National League circuit. Um, you're, you're right. He would go to the hospitals, visit kids. Um, Children loved Clemente. Um, and, you know, it's funny, they still do. One of my um, friends at the Washington Post, Stephen Ginsburg, who's the national editor, his wife, Amy Joyce, is from Pittsburgh. And their 10-year-old son adores Roberto Clemente above all other players. There was, he had some special connection while he was alive and even today to, to children. Um, so... Uh, it's part of the reason that I was so drawn to Clemente is because he had this um, humanistic magnetism to him. Um, and the subtitle of your book um, is The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero. Uh, Dad, knowing you, you don't use the word hero lightly. Um, so can you talk about that he, I mean, what you just described, he, he seems almost myth, myth-like, saint-like, heroic. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't a saint. I mean, as I've said, he, he um, had a pride that could uh, bubble into arrogance. Um, he once uh, actually uh, cold-cocked a, a fan who uh, was rubbing up too close to him um, near the, the bus in Philadelphia at Clemente uh, 
just turned around and smacked the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, you know, he, so he lost his temper now and then. Um, he, um, he had other f- human flaws, as we all do. Um, so he was not a saint, but he, he was someone who um, radiated uh, sort of a human touch and, um, and a love of, of the common person. Um, and I think that came through in every aspect of his life. Um, but the word hero is, of course, completely um, almost lost its meaning because it's overused so much, and especially in sports where there are so few people. They can have what's called a heroic deed by winning a, a game of some sort, but for the person to be a hero is something else. And in, in Clementi's case, you know, I was even a little reluctant whether I should use it or not in the subtitle. Um, but in the end, I thought that the way he lived his life and the way he died in particular was indisputably heroic. And so that's why I used it. And also within the context of a complex understanding of myth, um, which is a large part of what this, you know, surrounds this book. So uh, his connection to Nicaragua, you talk about um, several times in the, in the, um, the league he went there. Can you set yes. up uh, why he had that um, that connection and and why he went before the um, the trip that that would take his life? Sure. Um, this was 1972. Clemente was had been in the major leagues for 18 seasons. He was indisputably a uh, star. He had already gotten his 3,000th hit, second-to-last game of the season. And a friend of his uh, asked him whether he would want to coach the Puerto Rican team in the Caribbean World Series, which that year was being held in Managua. And Clemente agreed to do it. He was also just starting um, his sports city in San Juan, his sort of lifelong dream of setting up a uh, a sports city for young, uh, uh, underprivileged kids in San Juan and Puerto Rico, where they could both uh, get uh, academics and training in, in athletics. Um, so anyway, he agreed to be the coach of this team, and he and Vera, his wife, uh, and Osvaldo Hill, who was a close friend and sort of the general manager of the outfit, um, went down to Puerto Rico with this team of young players, um, and Clemente managed them in the World Series. I'm sorry, Dad, uh, this is in Nicaragua, right? Is that correct? Well, what did I say? Puerto Rico. But I'm, I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, it's the Puerto Rican yeah. team. That's Puerto right. Team. I went to Managua, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, he met uh, the dictator of Nicaragua, uh, Anastasio Somoza. Um, and the Puerto Rican team played in that World Series. And that's when Clemente um, really fell in love with Nicaragua and when he would go out and meet the people, giving them coins. And 
and traveling around the country to some extent. And uh, he even brought a monkey in Nicaragua and came home with it. Uh, uh, and um, so anyway, a couple of months later, a horrendous earthquake shook Managua and Nicaragua. Um, hundreds of people were killed. Um, the the uh, city was devastated. And Clemente, who had been there recently, um, you know, if you have a chance to help others and fail to do so, you're wasting your time on this earth. He's organized uh, humanitarian aid to go to Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And um, they he spent all of his time focused on that, getting all kinds of money and and foods and goods to onto planes to get down there to help the people. And after one of those trips, um, the people who went down for him came back and said, you know, we don't think the the, uh, aid is getting to the people that we wanted to. It's being taken over by the military and essentially seized by the dictator, Somoza. And so Clemente decided, if I go, it will get to the people. And that's when he decided, um, made his fateful decision um, to join the next airlift down there and um, got on a plane that was in so many ways uh, almost criminally negligent. Now, that on chapter 14 is called Cockroach Corner. It's page 309. And it starts with, in the wide world of aviation, there are dark, little corners of desperation. One of them during the early 1970s was a back lot of Miami International Airport known as Cockroach Corner. It was said you could buy anything for a song at Cockroach Corner, occasionally even planes that had a decent chance of taking flight. That is a haunting start to a chapter. Um, yes, and that's the turns out to be the plane that one of the uh, a plane from cockroach corner is the one that clemente boarded um it was bought there by a puerto rican named arthur rivera who um really didn't know how to fly it and the first time he took it out he drove it into a ditch finally got it to san juan and um was at the airport in san juan when he heard that Clemente was looking for another plane to, to go down to uh, Managua in and offered his services for that plane. Um, it turns out that over the course of um, several months, uh, Rivera had been at odds with the Federal Aviation Administration for several uh fines and misdeeds that he'd done uh, as a, you know, owning that airline. Um, He didn't have a pilot um, when he offered the plane to Clemente. So he found a pilot who had just flown in from another mission who hadn't slept uh, in almost a day and who had, it turns out, uh, you know, 30 some violations against him for, uh, from the Federal Aviation Administration there was no um, flight engineer. They recruited someone off the docks of the airport to be the flight engineer who had no idea how to do it. 
And then most uh, damningly of all, if that isn't enough, you know, a, a, a bad airplane, uh, a, a sleepless pilot, a flight engineer who didn't know how to do it. They overloaded the plane. They didn't know how to load the plane. Uh, the people who were loading it overloaded it by some 4,000 pounds. And Clemente didn't know any of this. He just knew he wanted to get to Managua and boarded that plane. And it didn't really have a chance. No. It crashed shortly after takeoff. You described the aircraft was full um holding 198 packages of rice, 312 cartons of evaporated milk, 320 cartons of beans, 70 cartons of vegetable oil, 90 cartons of luncheon meat, and 60 cartons of cornmeal. Now, and then they overloaded it with even more, 16 bags of sugar weighing 60 pounds apiece, plus more rice, beans, milk, sugar, toothpaste, toothbrushes, and medical supplies. Um, And... And yeah, 4,193 pounds over the tolerated weight. So let me tell you how I got all of this information. Um, You know, it was general knowledge that Clemente died in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's about it. Um, You know, trying to get to Managua to uh, help the people down there after the earthquake. And I wanted to know what really happened. And there had never been much detailed reporting about it. Um, what was the story with that plane? So I figured, well, like most plane crashes, there had to be some lawsuit stemming from that. Mm. And in fact, there was. Um, and I thought it should be in San Juan. So I went to the courts there and it turns out they had none of the documents for the lawsuit. Um, they said that all of it was transferred up to Boston, where the Court of Appeals had handled uh, an appeal of that lawsuit. So I got all the documents from the Court of Appeals, but those were just really pro forma uh, appeals documents and nothing that explained what happened. Then I found, I started compiling a list of all of the lawyers who were involved in the lawsuits, uh, and both the plaintiffs and the uh, defense, and started calling them, and finally found a lawyer who um, sort of ironically, his office was three blocks from the Washington Post. I'd gone all over the country. This guy's office was three blocks from the Washington Post. He had been, he'd represented the, the FAA in the lawsuits. Now he was a, a, a plaintiff's lawyer um, for loss, for aviation. And I interviewed him about the case for about two or three hours in his office. And af, at the end of that, he said, okay, you're the guy. Oh, wow. And took me over to his closet. And there were four uh, big cardboard boxes of all the documents, all of the interviews, all of the uh, transcripts, uh, everything involved in that plane crash. Uh, Enormous, incredible detail. 
um, describing everything that I've already described about what happened. And um, so he gave me all of that material, loaned it to me. And from that, I was able to tell the real story of what happened that day. Wow. So what had, that's amazing, Dad, but why hadn't, why had the lawsuit ended and uh, why had it hit that sort of dead end? Um, good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know why it wasn't pursued more after that um, in terms of, I mean, I think the lawsuit um, continued and had a resolution, but the uh, press's coverage of it never got to that level of detail um, until I came along, um, you know, decades later. And I don't have a good answer to that. Is it typical for uh, those documents to be saved like that in a closet? Uh, No, I thought I'd find them in some uh, courthouse. Uh, (laughs) um, And I I think that that the the, uh, lawyer who saved them perhaps thought that he was going to write a book someday. This has happened to me before and since. Um, And so, you know, if you come along at the right time, um, those things tend to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Now you were about 22 in 1972. Is that correct? When Clemente died? I was just turned, um, I was 23. And do you remember? Oh, uh, vividly. Yeah. This is another story. I was then, uh, working at WIBA Radio in Madison, Wisconsin Um, on weekends and holidays. I was the night news anchor, I guess you would call it, reading five-minute and 15-minute newscasts on the radio. Um, And I was alone. It was New Year's Eve. Um working in the WIBA offices uh, up near Hoyt Park in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was a small little office and it had a teletype machine in it where I would get um, the AP reports from all over the world. And that was part of the news that I would read. I would also, unlike many rip and read reports, uh, radio people, I would write my own newscasts and do some of my own reporting, especially from the local scene. But anyway, that night, I don't know if anybody was listening. It was New Year's Eve late at night. The teletype started clanging, and al- over it came the news that Clementi had died in a plane crash. And I was devastated. He was my favorite player and one of my favorite human beings. And I think that um, it was probably 11 or so at night. And I, so I don't know if there's ever a recording of this or if anybody else was listening, but I devoted my entire five minute newscast Mm -hmm. to the death of Roberto Clemente. That must have been a rough night for everyone. And you describe in detail um, what life 
was like with Vera um, uh, back at home um, yeah. and sort of the premonition. It was New Year's Eve, but there was a somberness, it sounded like, among lots of people that night, even before the the crash. It was There was something sort of in the air, it felt like. Um, you know, and uh, Vera, uh, his widow, when I spent time with her in Puerto Rico, we talked quite a bit about that night and that day. And she told me this haunting story about how she was at the kitchen window earlier that day. And for some reason, um, this song came into her head. And it was called Tragedia de Viernes Santo, which was a song about a plane crash that happened, um, a plane going between San Juan and New York City in 1952 on Good Friday. Um, and she was singing it. How sad was Good Friday? What hours of anguish and pain our brothers suffer who were flying to New York. Over and over again, it looped in her mind. And this was before the plane crash. And you're right, there was sort of this eerie feeling that everybody who, who uh, I interviewed described about that night, uh, which was supposed to be one of the most joyous nights uh, in the country, in Puerto Rico, and uh, something felt off even before they discovered the plane crash. Um, uh, well, uh, I wanted to um, segue a little bit with some of the beauty of Clemente and um, uh, the sense that um, you said that he had told a friend, you don't die the day before you're supposed to die, you die the day you're, that you are supposed to die. Um, and he, his last game, he got a perfect, his 3,000th hit. Um, and there's some other sort of poetic things about um, his life. I don't know if it's in retrospect that we see them or while he was living it that you, that you see it. Um, well, it's, it's in retrospect. Uh-huh. Um, things... Um, once you see the totality of a life and it's gone, things fit into places um, more neatly than they do um, when the life is being lived. Um, and, you know, I can't quite explain why that happens, but it, but it tends to happen. Dad, I want to uh, just kind of move um, to a different uh, aspect of this book. Um, and we joke in our family that uh, many of your books are in various stages of not being made into a movie <laughs> um, because it's a long process. Um, yes. Uh, and, yeah. but Puente is actually getting pretty close uh, and we're going to talk about that. But before we do, um, I want to talk about the idea of baseball and movies um, uh, just by taking a little detour here um, because there's something you wrote about one of the, one of the more famous baseball movies in recent memory. <laughs> and I have the beginning paragraphs here. Um, and you wrote oh a little gosh, version of yes. Moneyball. And you, the title is Moneyball, A Game Filled with Errors. 
Before the baseball season ends in a few days, and before Moneyball leaves movie theaters in the public consciousness, I need to say a few things. Not that many sports issues get me riled up, but Moneyball, the first letter, capitalized or not, gets me going. Now, let me first state that I consider Michael Lewis, who wrote the book on which the movie is based, to be a brilliant thinker and writer, the absolute best at what he does, which is making complicated subjects accessible and revealing. But I absolutely hate the movie Moneyball and everything it stands for. I think it is a fraud, one that people I respect bought into for what they thought were noble reasons having to do with the little guy versus the big bullies. I also dislike the philosophy of Moneyball as it is applied to sports. My problem with the movie is a matter of truth. My problem with the philosophy is a question of art and beauty. Um, I think that sentence uh, where you say, I absolutely hate the movie. (laughs) Um, You don't really mince words there. Uh, So dad, did you like Moneyball? Well, let me say that uh, I wrote that um, while I was uh, on prednisone for my asthma, which tends to make me a little blunter than I sometimes am. But no, the more I watched that movie, the angrier I got for several reasons. Um, And mostly it had to do with uh, the movie as opposed to uh, the notion, the, the strategy of Moneyball. The movie portrays this team, the Oakland A's, as having this miraculous success that year because of these algorithmic decisions about what players are most valuable as relievers or players who get a lot of walks versus hits and it glorifies a few small decisions that um, some uh backroom people made, including the the general manager, Billy Bean, to make this team a success, even though they didn't have much money versus teams like the Yankees, who had tons of money. Well, great. I'm all for rooting for the underdog. But the fact is that the A's that year were successful because they had three brilliant pitchers who were all uh, scouted by old school scouts. And this movie spends a lot of time disparaging scouts as just being going on their gut instincts versus um, the statistical analysis um, that is so prevalent in baseball today. Those A's would have been bad without those three pitchers who were all scouted and drafted by the team. Their star player was Ruben Tejada, a shortstop, who again was scouted and 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 went, you know, it had nothing to do with the decisions that are glorified in this movie. So the movie is a fraud in that sense. Um, The second part of it, you know, I of course believe in analytics and the, uh, the use, uh, the studying of actual statistics to make smart decisions. Um, But I also believe in uh, baseball as something that trans, even though statistics are such an essential part of the game, something that transcends that, which is the beauty um, you can't put into analytics the beauty of Clemente's throws from right field to third base. Um, much more beautiful than a walk. So the whole strategy of emphasizing walks um, versus hitting and playing just sort of um, 
goes against my artistic sensibilities. Now, that's a secondary issue. The first one was I just thought that the way the movie portrayed why the A's were successful that year was completely bogus. Well, it's... I'm uh, still riled up. <laughs> yeah, no, and you're, I, don't know, I don't think you're on prednisone right now. So I think listeners <laughs> by now know that you have asthma and that <laughs> we always joke that when you have to take prednisone, which is a steroid, that it gets you just a little bit more um, riled up about things, yes, including movies about baseball. But I'm, I'm actually glad that you, uh, that you just put it out there um, <laughs> because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great, I guess, essay. Um, <laughs> um, but now the truth is about Clemente, um, I have a, a good friend, Joe Posnanski, who's a great baseball writer and just finished sort of uh, a thing on, on the Internet about the top 100 baseball players. And, you know, he believes deeply in analytics, among other things. But um, he says Clemente was great uh, no matter how you study him, analytics or not, because of the, his great fielding and on base percentage and everything else. Uh, so where are, where is the, the book in terms of its adaptation into a movie? What do you know? Well, it's in various stages of not being made into a movie. Um, it's gotten further than other books in the sense that it has a director who is deeply committed to it. His name is Ezra Edelman. He was the Academy Award winning director of the wonderful documentary series on O.J. Simpson. It has a brilliant screenwriter, um, Ricardo Phil- Rowan Ricardo Phillips, um, who is a poet and a sports writer um, and an intellectual. And I've read the screenplay, and I think it's terrific. Um, I think that everything is on hold these days because of COVID-19, and I, I'm not at all sure that where this one was beyond that anyway, more advanced than any of my other uh, books being turned into movies. But even with this great team, um, and even though I think that uh, a story about a fabulous, interesting, complex, heroic uh, Latino um, would have a huge audience, uh, there's no accounting for Hollywood and its tastes. Mm-hmm. So, Dad, this has been a great uh, talk, and and since none of us are traveling right now or going to stores, one of the things I wanted to do with season two is give a little shout out to the independent bookstores that that mean so much to us. Um, and you've got one just down the street, Politics and Prose, uh, and you talk there usually anytime you've got a new book. Um, it is my home stadium, so to speak. Um, I love politics and prose. And, you know, like all bookstores, they're sort of struggling right now with with uh, a closed shop, but people can still order from them. And I hope that they do help keep all of these uh, wonderful independent bookstores alive by ordering books, whether they're mine or anyone else's. just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. 
We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency with creative direction by Monika Ryan and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Formulating my plan. Out on the back nine. I know how to do my thing. I traded in the five spots.